The time is 12 o'clock, and you're listening to 106.1 FM WSCA, Portsmouth Community Radio. And it's noon on Wednesday, and you know what that means. It's time for the Economic Warrior. My money. Money. I get money from you. Money in the bank. Young money. Money, 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 money. It's the rich man's world. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! World-renowned financial advisor and best-selling author Barry James Dyke will arm you with the truth. This is The Economic Warrior. Please note, the opinions expressed on this show are of the individuals who speak them, and not necessarily of Portsmouth Community Radio, its members, or board of trustees. And good morning or good afternoon, uh, everybody. My name is Barry James Dyke, and uh, you're listening to WSCA in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and I'm here on this beautiful wintry day, Phil. That's you, exactly what it is. It's a beautiful wintry day, and um, we have a very special guest today. We have uh, William Paul Young. We're going to be talking to him from um, the state of Oregon, Oregon, Washington, okay, and um, about his book, The uh, the Shack, which has sold 20 million copies, and which has now gone on to make a, um, a, a major motion picture called The Shack, which was released this year. I know about you. I've, I've read your book. I've seen the, the movie, but could you just give our audience a little bit of background about it, because it's a truly inspirational story. And, it, and it's Christmas time, so I think it's even more important. Oh, you know, the book was never intended to be published. It was a, it was written as a gift for our kids for Christmas, and we have six children. Our youngest was almost thirteen at the time, and uh, I mean, we were living in a little tiny rental house, nine hundred square feet of usable space, and and uh, I was working three jobs. Caught the the train to my main one down to downtown Portland, Oregon, and uh, gave me about 40 minutes each way. It was a year that I felt like, uh, you know what, I'm finally healthy enough to do something for uh, my kids at Kim. My wife had been asking me for about four years. I've always written stuff, but but never did it for publication, and I didn't do The Shack for publication. And I made uh, ended up making 15 copies at Office Depot. Yeah. Um, Six went to the kids, and Kim got a copy, and the extras went to my friends, and I went back to work, and uh, never, never crossed my mind to publish it. And then my friends started giving it away, and that started a whole chain reaction, crazy, um, God's great sense of humor kind of chain reaction. And who who knew, you know, who knew? I'm a very conservative evangelical from my heritage and background, and... Uh, and it took me, you know, 50 years to write the book just because yeah. it took that long to come to a place of of wholeness and healing in my own heart. And and uh, missionary kid, preacher's kid, you know, which for some of us means that we just had further to go than most people. And uh, and here, you know, becomes this phenomenon. Who Who knew that there were so many people that were stuck somewhere between... Uh, religion and and relationship with God, and this book was about being human. It was about dealing with real loss, and uh, and it becomes this pretty wonderful movie. I mean, they did a, such a great job transferring it from the book to the film, and uh, I'm just I'm thrilled to have been a part of it. It's it's wonderful, you know, um, and I like it too, uh, Paul, because it's a uh, 
It kind of God's smiling on you in this. It's also a story of the underdog. I mean, I and I love the underdog because um, how many how many publishers turned you guys down? Twenty six, and half of them were you know faith based Christian publishers, and half of them were secular. Both of them couldn't figure out what genre it was, so they didn't know how they would end up marketing it. But uh, the faith-based people thought it was too edgy, and the secular people thought it had too much Jesus in it. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, who knew there were millions of us stuck somewhere between edgy and Jesus? And, uh, um, yeah, it. Uh, and you know what? It didn't bother me one bit to be turned down by publishers, because by this time in my life, I had I was learning to live inside the grace of just one day. So when the unexpected happens, or um, you learn to live without expectations, it's like no, they're they're just disappointments waiting to happen. So I'd rather live in an expectancy of a God who's actually involved in our lives and is good all the time. And um, and so it it really didn't bother me. And and I asked the question, how hard is it to publish the book? And so two guys in California, two of the three who originally wanted to turn it into a movie, created a little publishing house just to publish it, and uh, took about a year, a little over a year, to get it ready for print, and um, originally, and so they set up this little publishing house with a printer, and we pooled our finances. I had a buddy who loaned me some money, and one of them had a Visa and MasterCard, and the other had some savings, and we got our first ship shipment run May of 2007, landed in one of the guy's garages because he volunteered to ship the books out of his house at night because he's putting in people's sprinkler systems during the day. <laughs> and, uh, and that's, you know, who, like I said, we were hoping to get through 10,000 copies in two years. And uh, in the first 13 months, out of a garage and two storage units and a local printer, we spent less than $300 in marketing and advertising and shipped almost 1.1 million copies of the shack. And, uh, and it was, it was, nobody saw it coming. Nobody. And, uh, I think what it did is it gave people a language to have a conversation about God that wasn't religious, but relational. And, uh, and it also validated the great sadnesses of our lives because we all have them. We live in a world that's, broken and full of loss, and, uh, and we need to know that our tears actually matter, that our, that our grief is uh, something that is real and something to, that we, we experience as human beings. You, you know, Paul, you know, and I, you know I, it, was, it was good for me because, you know, I've lost family members. We've all gone through tragedy. I lost a brother who took his own life, and I had lost my father when I was a young age and so forth, and, uh, but... On the there's a caption on the book that says, uh, underneath the check says, where, where, where tragedy confronts eternity. What does this mean? Is this the great sadness? Or, or tell me more about this. It is, and and it and it assumes that we all are a story. Every human being is a story, and that story is not only a story of love, but it's a story of loss. And and like you said, I had two two of my cousins take their own lives. And oh, you, you know, so you and, know that's uh, yeah, and we had a six-month period where my uh, my mother-in-law, Kim and I, had just been married for a year and a half, and my mother-in-law went in for routine surgery, had a massive coronary, and died. Well, three months before that, my 18-year-old brother was killed, and three months after, Shirley died. My five-year-old niece, Jennifer, was killed the day after her fifth birthday. So we know loss, and 
And then you tie it into our own personal history and our own personal losses. You know, part of my great sadness was um, growing up with a an angry young father who who didn't have the chip for being a dad uh, because that had been broken in him by his father before I ever showed up. But I didn't know that. I just knew that I lived with a furious man. And um, and then tie that into the sexual abuse that started in, in my own life before I was five years old inside a tribal culture and then inside missionary boarding school. So, you know, those kinds of losses just begin to tear the fabric of the human soul apart. Yeah. So where is God in all that? That's the eternity part. That's the the goodness and kindness and and uh, it, you know if God is good and powerful, why didn't God stop this? Why doesn't God stop just stop the brokenness in the world? And it's that kind of question that I embedded in into the story of Mackenzie and Missy, his daughter. But uh, both their names spell map on purpose, Mackenzie Allen Phillips and Melissa Ann Phillips, because I'm basically both those characters. I'm both the father who's had the losses, and I'm the child who was lost in my own history. Yeah. And it's like, all right, here are real questions that real people ask that, uh, that we have to deal with, that we have to say, all right, what do we do about this? And let's have a conversation. So... You know, I just didn't want my children to grow up with Gandalf with a bad attitude God that I did, <laughs> you know. And uh, uh, and so I, I used imagery that was outside the box to try to, to point to the character and nature of God rather than to some doctrinal certainty and go like, you know what, this is about a relationship with a God who is good all the time. And if you don't know that, you can't trust a God that is not good all the time. But then what does that say about our losses? So that's sort of how it's framed. Now, Paul, you, you, um, you had, a, you had some, it's just a wonderful book. And, um, and how can people find more about you? Where do you go? William Paul Young.com. I'm, I'm trying to remember. It's, what, w, it's WM for William. Cause I want to, I'm one of four generations of Williams, none of who go by William. Okay. But WM, uh, PaulYoung.com, and and it links to all the stuff. Yeah, you know, so, the Facebook and the Twitter and all that. Yeah, so you sold, you sold like twenty million copies now, or something like that, or something. It's, I think it's north of twenty three million, and which is people don't understand how crazy that is because <laughs> you know the average book only sells three to five thousand copies its entire lifetime. Yeah, and if you can sell seventy five hundred as a novel, you can put bestseller on it. And for the shack to do north of twenty three million is just just absurd uh, in the most brilliant, beautiful, funny sort of way. It's great, but in, in chapter two, there's a there's a quote which is uh, 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 beginning of the, of the chapter, Paul, and it says, "Nothing makes us so lonely as our secrets." From Paul Fournier, I guess, Fournier, and and it's kind of only yeah. it reminds me almost like a recovery. Uh, phrase, if you've heard of 12-step programs, like, we're only sick as our secrets. What, what does right. that mean? So, yeah, Paul Tournier is a psychologist uh, in the last century, and and um, and he's saying, you know what? There is something in the human heart, and, and I completely agree, that we're not designed to keep secrets. You know, to experience surprise, yes, but to 
to hold on to secrets and hiddenness. We're just not designed that way. We're designed to be open and unashamed, uncovered. And um, and because I'm, you know, I'm I'm very committed to the idea that uh, that God is is there is one God, but that but the God that we believe in is three persons in mutual self-giving, um, uh, respectful uh, uh, love, and that we're created inside that. And there is no shadow between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is no secrets, and we're, we're not designed for them. So the story from Genesis is that it's all about covering up, and we do it because we're so ashamed, and, and we become as sick as the secrets we keep. I, I agree with AA. Um, about that statement. But look, um, all of us know that the drive, the deepest drive in our hearts are toward authenticity, are toward integrity, are toward honesty, are toward openness, self-disclosure. It's just incredibly scary to get there because we are so ashamed that we think we're going to see that self-hatred reflected in, in the face of the other, which is, which is too much to bear. And just the thought of it for so many of us. So we just we just become posers. And I think partly is it because we believe that fundamentally at the core of our being, we are something bad. And sadly, a lot of our theology has taught us that. And I don't believe that's true at all. I think we were a very good creation before anything got broken. I don't, especially at Christmas. I mean, here we, we're celebrating yeah. what? We're celebrating <laughs> that God becomes human. Does God become anything that is not good? No. What does this say about God's view of humanity? That God would fully be enfleshed inside of our experience and our own limitations in humanity. That, that's a high view of humanity, not a low one. And a lot of us, we don't know the truth of who we are. So we just, we think we're worthless. So we just spend our lives trying to cover up that and pose ourselves to others so that we can win some little scrap of affection and encouragement and affirmation, because that's what keeps us going. And yet, at the core of our being, we're thinking we're just fooling people, um, because we don't believe that we are something beautiful and good and right. Um, and a lot of us, we have experiences that have enforced that lie, that, that all we are is just a piece of crap. And, um, and the truth is that that's not true at all. Uh, that is a lie, that we are a very good creation, and God has joined us fully inside what God considers to be the highest form of creation, which is being human. You know, uh, one thing, Paul, too, is that um, uh, obviously you love where you live, and um, the shack takes place at like the Columbia River Gorge, although I guess you Filmed it in uh, Vancouver, maybe. I'm I'm just trying to remember, but um... yeah, we it was filmed mostly in British Columbia, and but it, uh, the book itself is located in Oregon, so Columbia and the eastern part of the the state mostly, um, out in the Wallowas. And and so it's it's kind of my impression that um, you know in the in the movie, uh, folks, I should, uh, highly recommend people watch it. I know it's on, it's been released and it's on HBO now too, but. Um, it's just it's beautiful uh, the imagery and everything. Do you get really inspired by nature, Paul? I I, I had that feeling. Um, uh, we, uh, totally. Right here, let me tell you a little secret about the movie. There's a there's a scene where 
the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are standing in the garden. They've just they've just um, gone through a very emotional part of the journey, and um, and it's a burial scene. Yeah. And all of a sudden, these butterflies show up and start swirling around, and one of them lands on Sam's. Uh, Sam Worthington, who plays Mackenzie, yeah. uh, lands on his nose. Now, when you see the movie, it is so poignant and so beautiful, but you think it's got to be special effects, and it's not. It actually happened in the shot. So as they're shooting, this big butterfly comes in, and in, in amongst all the people, all the people off camera that you can't see, and they're shooting these four, and here comes this butterfly and just lights on Sam's nose, Mackenzie's nose. And his response to it is perfect. And you go like, oh, that is so God's great kindness and sense of humor. But yeah, the creation completely inspires me. Not just the creation outside of us, but within our own bodies. And then way outside, you know, astronomy and astrophysics. And then way inside, quantum theory and all of that. I'm... I'm deeply inspired by the creation. I think it's it's too beautiful for words. Now, the thing is, is that uh, uh, since you've published this book, uh, Paul, I don't know, you've turned into a celebrity, if you will, and... Um, uh, and I love talking. My kids always are giving me the rib, going like, "Dad, you're you're not that cool." And it's true. <laughs> you know, and um, you know, it's uh, even even my, myself, Paul. I've uh, I self published my book, but I've sold thirty thousand copies of in twenty two countries. So through word of mouth, so I'm not at your level, but I kind of I get it. But um, um, you know, and there's been twenty three million copies sold now. It's been translated into Spanish, German, Croatian, Polish. Is it's that correct? 50 languages. How many yeah. languages? 50. Five zero. Five zero. Holy moly, I didn't know that. Really? Yes. I mean, it's, it's kind of stunning. Crossroads, I think, is in 20-some languages, or even maybe 30, and then Eve is in 20-some, I think. And um, so, yeah, it's... The response to the shack was international. I mean, it's the number two book in the history of Brazil in Portuguese. Uh, Croatia, uh, Hrvatska, Croatia dubbed it their book of the decade, and the Ministry of Culture asked me to come speak to the country, and I did did that. (laughs) I mean, it's just amazing how you can write something, and the timing of it, the fact that there's an internet, the fact that there is this global conversation, and that somehow you wrote something out of your own experience that that just slipped into the lives and hearts of people in all these different cultures. It's stunning. And um, so, you know, I get to I get to go to some pretty amazing places and, and, and talk to people from from parliaments to business, to prisons, to death row, to uh, homeless shelters, to women's groups, to seminaries. I mean, it, the conversation's universal, and it's human. And I'm, I'm kind of uh, awash in the wonder of it all. And, you know, but it, my identity's not in this. Yeah. Thankfully, I didn't write this before I, you know, before I was finally at a place where 
I knew my identity, my worth, and my value, significance, and security, and meaning, and purpose, and destiny, and community, and love all come from my relationship with, with God. They don't, it doesn't come from a book. And uh, I'm grateful to be a part of it, but it's not something that I need. And, um, um, you know, the, the thing that the book did do for us is that it opened an invitation into the holy ground of other people's stories. I get invited into some of the most wrenching losses, uh, some of them so devastating that nobody really wants to know about them. And, and I get invited into some of the greatest redemption stories that I've ever encountered because I wrote a story that, that because of that, people trust me to be in that space with them because uh, it's an honest story. And uh, I tell you, that's a blessing that I'm, nobody could have seen coming and that I get to participate in that is absolutely surreal and I'm so deeply grateful for. Your your life is changing. It is a bit of a celebrity now. And I there was actually Oprah did an interview of you uh, a couple months back, whatever, and I thought it was very, very touching. And uh, heck, even Stephen. That was beautiful. Yeah, and, and, I love being with her. I have so much respect for that woman. That was great, and um, and so, um, but you, you still seem to have both your feet uh, on the ground, and your kids keep you grounded. Am I correct? <laughs> Absolutely. I'm surrounded by people who love me but aren't impressed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, that's great. Um, now, th- the whole thing is is that because it is a creative process, and. Um, um, could you please share with our audience and the people, you know, because a lot of people have these books within them, uh, Paul, with a, and um, could you tell people how you write and, um, and you know, because you've also written not just The Shack, but you've written Crossroads, Eve, and the latest book, Lies We Believe About God. Uh, you yeah. know, how, you know, could you, I have some, how do you write? How do you do this process? Um, you know, there are some of my friends who are very disciplined writers. I mean, they get up and they do their thousand words a day and all that. And I think as a result of that, they are really good crafts people with with regard to the writing process. I'm just not a disciplined kind of guy. I just, um, um, I can get lost in a project and be there for a long time, days. And But uh, to do something as a routine and a discipline, um, I'm just not wired that way. So for me, it's like collecting collecting an idea in bones. I've written all my life, written poetry and songs and short stories and stuff. I'd just never written a book until The Shack. And, um, and you know, my friends and my family, they, they love my writing, but they're my friends and family. Yeah. So, you know, I, I didn't think about that anybody else would really care about it. But um, um, when I write, uh, and, and the books have been different. Um, Crossroads in... The shack were similar in that my picture in my mind is I gathered up all the scraps, all the the ideas and bones and bits that I kind of jotted down along the way, and I I I take them all and I jump into a river and I let the river just take me downstream and and the picture of a river works really well for me because um, rivers are fed by tributaries. And those tributaries for me are like conversations that I've had with people or a movie that I've seen or lyrics of a song or experiences that I've had. Um, and so they're feeding into the river. But at the same time, you're, you're being carried along 
by by the river itself. So when you get into the writing process, there's a lot of stuff that you run into that um, that is a surprise. You, you don't you don't see it coming around the bend, and the characters will take you places that you don't expect either. So there were some things that, as I was writing, that I didn't know where am I going with this, and and you know my advice to people when they write is to, especially if they're writing fiction, don't try to organize the story. You know you have your idea and just write. Writing is an activity, not an aspiration. It's it, you just write, and you write a lot, because at some point down the road, then you'll organize it, and then at that point, you'll begin an editing process, and that is really critical. So the shack and crossroads were easy for me. I jumped in a river, but nobody else was in the river. Yeah. Eve, hardest thing I've ever done. There was a lot of flow to it, but I was in a river that was full of people and book and boats, and, and yeah. oh, you know, it was a very different experience. Um, uh, when I get the chance, I'll go away. Uh, I'll spend a few days just trying to put it all together. Um, and then like in the editing process, you start cutting stuff out and editing is tough. Um, uh, but it's really a good tough. Uh, and, um, I've had editors that are, you know, part of the publishing community and, and, um, and it's been like iron against iron. And iron sharpens iron if the angle's right. Yep. And so, uh, you know, here here we are uh, working on Eve. Eve is about, I don't know, 78,000 words long. I, I edited out 55,000 words. And um, so it's, you know, you have, to, you have to really work on, okay, what do you think about this idea? And, and how do you reframe this? And will it work? And does it work with the storyline? And... And I find that a lot of people, it's like they think that the first time they write something, it's perfect or, or they're afraid that it's not perfect or they don't want to finish it because if you finish it, somebody can judge it. Yeah. And, um, and so there's a lot of fear that a lot of people have when it comes to writing. And, um, but there's a timing to it too. Um, that is a part of a natural movement when you're when you're ready you're ready and and then you write um but you can't stick your identity there either because if you do that you can't take any advice one of the things that i did i'm so thankful for is that i give my writing to friends of mine yeah and they give me feedback well i really i love this but i thought you know what would it have been like if you'd have done this and i go like all right let me let me do that. Let me try that. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. And uh, I'll give you an example with the shack. Um, when I wrote the shack, I was working three jobs. So I was trying to fit it in between everything. And there was a Saturday that I had eight and a half hours clear. Kim was gone somewhere with the kids and, and I didn't have any work that day. And in eight and a half hours, I wrote four complete chapters. Well, one of them is chapter 15, which is Festival of Friends. And it's the Colored Lights chapter and the Reconciliation with the Father chapter. Yep. And um, that chapter is in the book the way I wrote it the day I wrote it. It is not a chapter that has been touched by a rewrite. No kidding. But it set, it set the bar. Every other chapter was impacted. 
but not 15. And um, so sometimes, I mean, you just get caught in it and you end up with a chunk or a piece or a chapter that is just like, this is so beautiful. And, uh, and yet there are other times, uh, the garden scene, which has become a very, very powerful scene. Yeah. Um, I originally wrote it as a prim, proper British tea garden. And, and a friend says, you know, I, I thought it would be a, a wilder place. So I said, well, let me try that. And out comes uh, uh, an elevated chapter because it's the chapter where you have the beautiful mess and you have all kinds of things going on inside that chapter that weren't in the original, uh, the very first way that I wrote it. But it was because of a comment that somebody made. So again, you got to hold, you got to hold the writing process loosely, but you got to trust that it's a river too. And here's another thing: I have a friend who wrote a book and and a very good book, and she met with me and because she wanted to talk about the writing process and the publishing process. And it was one of those moments where you say something that is absolutely brilliant that you've never thought of before. Yeah, I, I say that's the Holy Spirit trying to make you look good, <laughs> and uh, and at one point. I said to her, let me ask you a question. What if the net result of writing is that it effectively touches one person's life? Will that be enough? And she said, no, which I love her because she is so honest. A lot of people would have faked an answer at that point. And I said, well, and here here comes the, you know, as you're talking, you're saying something that's like, oh, my gosh, this is this is exactly right. I said, um well, then you would have never left the 99 to go find the one. I mean, you wouldn't have left the 99 to go find me. And it's like, oh, she says, oh, my goodness, that's a two by four upside the head. Because for those of us who are faith people that that love Jesus, Jesus would leave the 99 to go find the one. We're about the one. We're not about the numbers. And if the net result of our work is that, that it gets to, that we get to participate in it, in touching the life of one person, isn't that enough? And I, and I think that for many of us, we we are not secure enough in our identity, in our relationship with God. We don't actually trust God, so we're looking for money, or we're looking for platform or notoriety or something uh, that will give us a sense of control, because we don't actually believe in a God who's good all the time and a God that we can trust. And um, so, you know, writing just becomes another one of those vehicles, just like like our work or our art or whatever we do, um, a, a, a crucible, a place where the things that truly matter can come to the surface. And uh, but when you write something and it touches somebody's heart and life and, and they respond that way, it's it's such an honor. And um, I mean, I'm surrounded by by gratitude in my world, as well as grandchildren. So, <coughs> grandchildren. Yeah. Now, one, one of the things, too, which I, uh, in, in the book, uh, uh, I don't know how you, we're such a, a performance-based culture, uh, Paul. Would you agree? In other words, what do we make? Well, how, how much, you know? I think we're a, a performance-based humanity. That's the way we cover up. Yeah, I mean, it, that's really part, it's part of the, the big shroud, if you will, is, we try to hide ourselves in a performance or our money or our stuff. I mean, is that same crazy? Uh, I absolutely agree that we that we do that because of the issue of trust. And for a lot of us, you know, trust was broken 
and and when you're a child, you trust by nature until someone teaches you that it's dangerous. And then you couple that with the, uh, you know, what we were told about our value and worth that we were worthless unless unless we could get the A, unless we could you know be on the sports team, unless we could be the captain, unless we could be, you know, and um, that you're loved if this we're not loved just because we exist. Now parents. And grandparents, I think they have a handle on some of that um, in, a, in a way. But, you know, even we did this to our kids, too. And, and this is not just a, an, an American or Western issue. It's all over the globe. I was in um, Korea, South Korea, and I was there for the shack, and then I was there for Crossroads. And in, in the five years in between, their questions changed. Uh, when I came for Crossroads, there was a question that they asked me in every interview, whether it was television or radio or newspaper. They, they asked me a question then that they had never asked me for the shack. And, and the question then was, how do we heal the human soul? You know, and they were internalizing the questions. And they even asked me on national television, do you think we're killing our children? Because their education system is so rigorous you know, that some, uh, many of their children are up at four, five, and six in the morning and aren't home until 10 or 11 at night because of the educational system and the necessity for performance. And as a result, Korea, Japan, <clears throat> they have incredibly high rates of suicide, especially among uh, young people and children. But we do that because what? If, if I feel a sense of shame, then I've got to push my children to perform so that I can get a sense of value through their work. And we end up hurting our own kids, but we're hurt ourselves. So yeah, I think performance is the driver, but behind performance is, is shame, uh, largely in our world. Shame yeah. is I, I am something wrong. Guilt is I've done something wrong and got to, we have to deal with that, but shame is I am something wrong. And I think that's a lie. You know, there's a line uh, in the movie, Paul, in the book too. Um, I think it is that uh, when the uh, was it uh, Sam Worthington, and Jesus are walking across the water, and uh, then he tries to go across the water and he can't do it, uh, and uh, it's just <laughs> and he starts what, to sink. He starts to sink. You know, I, I said this is really great. And then uh, there's a line that says, and Jesus says to uh, uh, to Mac, you know, this always works. Uh, uh, when we do it together, you know, when Jesus was, you know, and, <laughs> you know, I thought that was one of the best lines in, in, in the movie because it, n- none of us can do this on their own. I mean, you couldn't have done this book on your own. Um, it, any, any, we, it's the whole, this whole great thing that we're great individuals. We can do all this stuff on our own. It's really fallacy. It's not true. It's not true. We're, we're made in the image of a God who's never been alone. And if we're made in the image and likeness of God, and God has never been alone, then aloneness is a deviation from, from reality. And, and that's why shame and, and loss drives you to isolation. It, it, it pushes you away. Lies push you away from relationship. Honesty and integrity moves you toward. And none of us are designed to do this alone. We can't. Um, and... Yes, we have a very individualistic culture, and it's killing us. It is. Um, 
And, and that's why family is important and friendships are important and letting people into your world is important. Counseling is important. Therapy is important. Um, this is why AA has had such a profound effect on the planet uh, because they were able to form community and get people out of isolation who were ashamed of themselves and, and bring them into the light the community offers and, and frankly, teach the church how to do what the church should have been doing the whole time, being a safe place for community. Um, and uh, and I'm, I'm grateful for, for movements uh, that have risen up around our losses and said, you know what, we have to find a communal experience here. And I think that that's, the way, that's going to be the way forward. Relationship and community is going to be the way forward in our culture, uh, in terms of our divisiveness and in um, dealing with issues of ethnicity and gender and politics and, and economics and religion. It's, it's going to be the continual formation of trusting relationships. And, uh, but not isolation and not individualism. Yeah. You know, it's, um, yeah, Paul, this has just been a wonderful conversation. And, um, you know, um, you know, uh, and this is Christmas time. Is there, is there any, um, one, uh, message you'd like to share with our audience, which you, uh, this Christmas season, I mean, uh, we're all in this together, I feel. And, um, uh, you know, whether it be, we be, uh, Jews or Christians or Muslims or whatever, any any one yeah. uh, message you'd like to share with the audience? Be sensitive to. There are so many people that Christmas and this holiday season is such a hard time um, because of losses, because of of um, of this time of year represents the opposite of aloneness in so many respects, and there are so many folks who have been isolated by age by by work, by whatever. And, and I, I would say, you know, if there's, if there's any time of the year um, for reaching out to the single person who, who is far away from home or to um, the, the person who's in the shelter or whatever, this is, this is a time to do it. Yeah, this um, is, yeah. Uh, we're going to end up with, 24 people at our house um, over the next few days. And at the same time, we just had twins born last Friday, you know, <laughs> that uh, twin grandbabies, which makes 12 grandbabies now. And, uh, and so, you know, there is such a beauty to this time and such a heartbreak for some folks. And it's like, this is a time for us to express our care and compassion, and we know it. We're drawn toward it. That's part of the, the wonder of this time is that it's a giving time. and It's like we're celebrating that God is constantly a giver. And, um, and then we can turn around and begin to give to not just our family, but those outside of our family. Wow. I couldn't think of a better message, uh, Paul. You nailed it. And uh, really, yeah. So it also uh, reminds me to... Uh, Look at my uh, side of the street, if you will, and uh, and all of us. I think um, uh, I can't I can't thank you enough, Paul. It's been a wonderful, wonderful show. Uh, let's gonna uh, keep this in touch. Um, 
So people go to Absolutely. William uh, WM Paul, Paul Young. Dot com. And then you know, if you Google the shack or whatever, you're, you're all over the internet. And um, God bless you, uh, uh, Paul, and keep pushing back the frontiers of ignorance. And uh, we'll do it again. Let's keep it in touch. And God bless you. Absolutely. And America's God bless you, too. And, and in the season of grateful hearts, may you experience the embrace of relentless affection. That's awesome, and uh, and uh, thank you for your time today. And this has been uh, the Economic Warrior with my Phil Kleiger and uh, my sidekick Will Pierce. And God bless and Merry Christmas, everybody. This has been the Economic Warrior with your host Barry James Dyke, broadcast live at WSCA Portsmouth Community Radio, engineered by Phil Kleiger. If you have any questions about today's show or need an ally in conquering the battleground of finance, contact the warrior himself at barryjamesdyke.com. Who are the warriors?